0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com. Despite
1: the pandemic, house prices across the world are soaring. What's driving this boom from the blue, and how long can it last? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... With sleek apps, cool ads and low fees, fintechs have done their best to distance themselves from the staid old world of banking. So why are some now jumping through hoops to become banks themselves?
2: The head of the OCC is saying, you know, come on in, the water's fine to all of these fintech banks, suggesting that he's, quite keen to
1: embrace these new business models. And in the 1980s, the fizzy drinks business was at its most sparkling. We reflect on the life of Donald Kendall, the legendary CEO who set off the cola wars.
3: In one corner, call it the red corner, we had the veteran champion, Coca-Cola. And in the blue corner, we had the underdog, Pepsi. It became a cultural phenomenon.
1: In the global recession a decade ago, average house prices across the world fell by over 10% in real terms. In March this year, as the economic impact of the pandemic began to bite, economists, investors and homeowners once again braced for the worst. But things have turned out rather differently.
2: First, though, to house prices and how remarkably healthy those prices are in these pandemics. Home sales across the U.S. are on the rise as buyers... Why
1: aren't real estate prices dropping? The world's largest single asset class is booming.
0: Against all expectations, really, the global housing market has continued the strength that it saw in 2018 and 2019.
1: Callum Williams is our senior economics writer.
0: In about 90% of countries for which the data house prices are rising... In the rich world, they're rising at about 5% a year, which is pretty strong by historical standards. And then in some countries, you're seeing pretty rapid increases. So for instance, in Germany, house prices are rising at about 10% a year, which is really rapid by German standards. South Korea and China are dealing with very bubbly housing markets at the moment. And in the US, what you're seeing is that the growth rate of the median price per square foot has jumped more quickly than in any three-month period in the lead-up to the global financial crisis a decade ago. So this is really against all expectations.
1: How much of this is just because interest rates are low, so mortgages are cheap and other investments don't look as attractive?
0: I think that's definitely part of it, for sure. I mean, there's a very good detailed literature looking at the impact of lower real interest rates on house prices and finding a pretty strong correlation. That, That said, it's a bit of a puzzle this time around because Although interest rates have fallen and people can take out mortgages at at lower rates than they were able to a year ago, what we've also seen at the same time is that banks and mortgage companies across the world actually have become a lot more nervous about lending to their more sort of risky customers. So basically people on lower incomes, first-time buyers and so on. And so what you've seen in the kind of bottom end of the market, as it were, is that actually banks have pulled back on mortgage lending. So I think there are sort of other things uh, aside from monetary policy that are explaining what's going on in the global housing market.
1: So what other factors might be pushing house prices up?
0: Well, I think there's two big things that are going on. One is related to the stimulus packages that governments passed when the pandemic began. There's sort of two bits to that. One is that governments basically handed out large amounts of money to people, I mean, particularly in the US and Japan, but not only there. And so what that's meant is that people are much less likely to need to fill a foreclose on their mortgages, which means that the prices don't go down. And then the second thing in the stimulus packages has been explicit policies to basically support the housing market. And this has occurred in many, many countries, not just in the rich world, but in in the developing world as well, where... Governments have said to people, you know, you can have a, up to a year's holiday on your mortgage payments or banks are not allowed to foreclose on people, that kind of thing. And this is having really quite sizable impact. So if you look at Britain, for example, at the moment, the number of repossessions of, of mortgaged properties is about 90% lower than it was a year ago. And then the other big thing that's going on is more of a kind of shift in consumers' preferences. As we all know, we are spending more time at home now than we were a year ago, there's certainly emerging evidence that people basically are are willing to devote a higher share of their their expenditure to to housing costs. And so basically, this means that more money is being funneled into the housing market.
1: So are people actually moving more often, more frequently than they used to?
0: Certainly, if you look at the US, the existing home sales are are high um, by historical standards at the moment. It's also the case that people are trying to trade up What that really means is people are looking for more space. For instance, in Britain, the prices of detached homes and of semi-detached homes are rising much more quickly than the prices of apartments. And so this suggests that people are looking for things like home offices, gardens, places to do workouts and all that kind of thing.
1: And what about the the idea that people are, are moving to more remote places because they can work online? Are people going to
0: the seaside, into the countryside? So there 's a few things on that. One is that if it 's merely a question of demand being shifted from cities to suburbs, then theoretically that shouldn 't have an impact on, on prices. As to the question of whether it 's actually happening, there 's been a lot of media stories about this, a lot of stories about, say New York emptying out and of people moving out of San Francisco. It is true that the New York and San Francisco property markets are doing the worst in the u s at the moment, but generally. There's not that much evidence of a big shift towards suburbs. If you look across the US as a whole, the house prices in the suburbs are increasing pretty much as quickly as house prices in urban areas. So at the moment, I think cities still kind of hold quite a lot of attraction for people, even if, you know, they're quite dense and, and you know, and full of coronavirus.
1: And what about the outlook, Callum? I mean, from what you say, if, if interest rates are only part of it. I mean, they're, they're likely to stay low for some time to come, I guess. But governments can't continue to be as fiscally generous as they're being at the moment, can they? So uh, could all this come to a grinding halt if governments start to remove all this money they're
0: pouring into the economy? Theoretically, that makes sense. I think, I mean, I would be reluctant to predict a decline, not least because lots of economists predicted a pretty sharp decline in house prices at the beginning of the pandemic and were proven to be to be wrong. The other thing to bear in mind is you can't just think about what's happening to demand, you also need to think about what's happening to housing supply. On that front, there's been a pretty sharp fall in construction over the past six months. And so people are competing for a smaller supply of new houses, which pushes up prices. One of the lessons from the 2008 crisis is that demand can come roaring back as it did in sort of 2012 onwards as employment rose and wages started to go up and all that sort of thing. But it took much longer for housing supply to to bounce back. And so a number of economists I've spoken to for this piece think that something similar could happen this time. And so you'll have sort of extra demand running up against lower supply. And that, of course, would mean that house prices would stay pretty high.
1: And is that fall in supply because building sites are closing down because of social distancing requirements? Or is it because investment has fallen off?
0: I think it's both actually, you know, maintaining social distancing on a building site is difficult. And so that basically raises the cost of construction. And the other thing is that economic uncertainty, various indices of economic uncertainty are unsurprisingly, extremely high at the moment. And there is good evidence that uncertainty in general tends to dissuade business investment. And the same is true for For housing, So if you look at the period of high uncertainty after the Great Recession 10 years ago, housing construction really, really declined and never actually really recovered. Even just before the pandemic, it was still pretty low. And so I personally wouldn't be surprised if you saw something similar this time around.
1: Callum Williams, thank you very much. Thank you. And to read more about what the housing boom means for prospective buyers, landlords and investors, please subscribe to The Economist. You can also read our Schumpeter columnist on what Warren Buffett sees in Japan, Inc., and a brilliant graphic detail on why America's economy is recovering faster than was thought possible. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find the link on your podcast app.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Next, in the past decade, new fintech firms, companies offering financial services online and through apps, have mushroomed in America. With their slick technology and cool, approachable marketing, many fintechs found success precisely by distancing themselves from the old world of traditional banking. And regulators, wary of exotic new risks, also thought this arrangement just fine. But that may all be about to change, as America's banking sector welcomes a clutch of new upstarts.
2: In quick succession, there have been three fintech banks that have acquired banking charters.
1: Alice Forwood is our Wall Street correspondent.
2: For a very long time, few fintech companies have really been keen to be banks. There's been this class of fintech companies which we refer to as fintech banks. And they are trying to replicate some of the businesses that that banks have typically dominated, so for example they 'll open up checking accounts they 'll issue credit cards and up until now, exclusively those fintech banks have not been actual banks; they 've always been partnered with an existing retail bank. All the fintech banks were, were seemingly quite happy with that model, you know in part because then they were viewed as consumer tech companies, more valuable and more exciting. but over the past few months, three Fintech companies have got proper banking licenses. Two of them, Varo and Gico, managed to get federal banking charters, and then in September, Kraken, which is a cryptocurrency exchange, managed to acquire a state bank charter in Wyoming.
1: Well, obviously the third a cryptocurrency exchange is very different from a traditional bank. But what about the other two? What what are their business models?
2: So Varo Bank before it acquired its banking charter was kind of this sort of consumer acquisition machine. It would open accounts for customers on its platform, which is this app that's sort of very easy to use and strictly designed and things. And then those deposits would ultimately still be held by by a traditional bank rather than making money off overdraft fees or wire fees or any of the ways that sort of typical retail banks might normally make money on consumer deposits. They just collect the interchange when you use your debit card. And now that Varro has a bank charter, it intends to do a lot of those roles itself. So it will hold the deposits itself. And eventually, the founder of Varro has said that he will offer a lot of like, products and services that banks typically do, either loans or savings accounts, sort of investment products. Uh, so it seems that they are using their bank charter to basically become a very tech-enabled, traditional bank.
1: And the second bank that got a full federal banking license, GICO, how does it work?
2: it is trying to do something very different. It's trying to be a very balance sheet-like bank. And so when you open an account with GICo, it doesn't hold your deposits itself on its balance sheet. Uh, what it does is it immediately converts those deposits into T-bills, so very short-dated government treasuries. And that means that you then get the returns from those T-bills. So you'll get the interest paid on those products And at the same time, will also be exposed to the risks associated with holding an asset rather than having your cash at a bank. So if the prices of T-bills go up and down, the value of your balance will also go up and down. GECO says that it it can be quite financially beneficial for customers because, number one, they get the interest. And number two, GECO can remit any other payments that banks usually collect. And therefore, those accounts yielded north of 3% last year.
1: But for all of them, is it a a kind of trade-off between the opportunity of becoming bigger and doing more business with a banking licence and having to face more stringent regulation?
2: Yeah, so there obviously are pros and cons to becoming a bank. Uh, What the founders of Varo and Gico talk about is having control over your business model, owning the entire process. On the other hand, you you do become much more scrutinised by regulators and the process of getting a banking licence can be quite difficult. So for example, Chime, which is the biggest fintech bank in America, its founder, Chris Britt, hasn't said that he he will never become a bank, but he basically says that they are more of a technology company that's layered over a bank than wanting to be a bank themselves.
1: And and why have Varo and Chica seen themselves as, as different from Chime in this respect?
2: Well, one of the the differences between GCO and and VARO and and other fintechs is that they were both founded by... People have spent most of their careers working in the banking industry. So Varro, for example, was founded by Colin Walsh, who'd worked at Lloyd's Bank, a British retail bank, and also American Express. Gico was founded by Stefan Lindner, who had worked as a trader at Goldman Sachs. And so both of them came from a banking background and possibly are therefore sort of more plugged into the banking system and, and wanting to operate a technology company within that rather than outside of it, which is what a lot of the other fintech banks have decided.
1: And how about the regulators, Alice? Are they welcoming these fintechs with, with open arms? Has their attitude changed?
2: So for a while, regulators were understandably quite sceptical of fintechs in general, I think. And that is a sort of relic of the global financial crisis where regulators in general were not enthusiastic to introduce new unusual business models into the banking system that they were already trying to to stabilize, but now I think there has been a shift in general wanting to embrace the the benefits that technology enabled firms can can bring while still being prudent uh, in particular the head of the OCC, which is the office of the Comptroller of the currency, one of America's big bank regulators. He sort of has this window ahead of the presidential election where he is saying, you know, come on in, the the water's fine to all of these fintech banks, suggesting that he's quite keen to embrace these new business models. But we'll we'll see whether he uh, remains head of the ACC for, for the foreseeable future.
1: So do you think we're seeing then the beginning of a new wave of new banks, fintechs becoming banks in America? Is this just the start of a big trend?
2: I definitely think that regulators are more welcoming. And now that a few have managed to get banking licences, surely we'll see more trying. I guess the sort of big question is whether that matters for the big incumbents, whether these newfangled banks can, can compete aggressively with them. A lot of people in America have a very adversarial relationship with their banks, especially poorer people. Many of the fintech banks have been founded with the idea of not doing that, basically. And I see the appeal of them, but I do struggle to see how they will scale beyond a certain point, And certainly how they'll make a lot of money beyond a certain point, which I think is why some other ones have outcome come at the problem by trying to become actual banks. The, the problem then is like, well, will they start to do all the things that banks do to make money because they are very profitable? So... I would expect more to try. I, I, I wonder how successful they will all be.
1: Alice, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Simon.
1: And finally, in the 1980s, America went mad for fizzy drinks. The average American was drinking well over 40 gallons of the stuff a year. The battle of the brands to win over soda drinkers became the most epic rivalry in the history of American marketing. It was a cultural phenomenon. Our US business editor, Vijay Vaitheeswaran, looks back at the life of Donald Kendall, the man who sparked the cola wars.
3: In one corner, call it the red corner, we had the veteran champion, Coca-Cola. And in the blue corner, we had the underdog, Pepsi. During these cola wars, they went from having a a low-grade battle, where they had been jousting for decades, to an all-out war. Chimp A will be allowed nothing but Coca-Cola. Chimp B will be allowed nothing but Pepsi. Trying to one-up each other. The results are astounding. Tweaking (laughs) recipes, coming up with new flavors, and having ever more extravagant marketing and advertising campaigns. Attention Pepsi drinkers, introducing the new taste of Coca-Cola, the best Coca-Cola ever. It grew to such an intensity that Billy Joel even sang about it. And credit for all that goes to Donald Kendall, PepsiCo's legendary former boss died on September 19th at the age of 99. Donald Kendall's story is an iconic tale of rags to riches. He started on the bottling line at Pepsi, but he had a gift. He was charming. He was a great salesman. And by the age of 35, he had become Pepsi's top sales and marketing executive. Just seven years later, he was named the CEO of the company. By the time he stepped down in 1986, a tenure of more than two decades, he had managed to increase the company's sales by nearly 40-fold to $7.6 billion. There were three things that made Don Kendall uh, an extraordinary corporate leader. Strategic vision, this principle of fairness that he brought to his leadership, and the third, of course, was his marketing flair. He made a daring acquisition just a couple of years after he took over as boss of Frito-Lay, which is a a leading company selling salty snacks, potato chips and such. And that acquisition has given Pepsi an advantage in terms of diversification that persists to this day. Last year, Pepsi's revenues were $67 billion globally, dwarfing Coca-Cola's $37 billion in sales. Long before Black Lives Matter, and the current uproar about corporate racism. He named African Americans to top corporate jobs, making Pepsi the first big American company to do this. And it even prompted a boycott by the Ku Klux Klan. And he stared them down by naming additional African Americans to top jobs. The Cola Wars, at their heart, were about getting Americans, and ultimately people around the world, to drink more fizzy drinks. At the heart of this was a spending battle. In 1975, Coca-Cola spent about $25 million in advertising, and Pepsi, some $18 million. Ten years later, those figures had shot up to $72 million and $57 million, respectively. In 1995, Pepsi outspent Coke, $112 million to $82 million. You're the Pepsi! Among other things, they brought in a new generation of drinkers. Pepsi branded itself the choice of a new generation. Whereas Coke tried to portray itself as the authentic original, the real thing. Perhaps the greatest coup was when Pepsi bagged the biggest star of the decade, Michael Jackson, fresh from the success of Thriller, for a record-breaking $5 million deal from 1983, which really set the bar for integrated marketing deals from then on. There were many skeptics who suggested that all this spending wouldn't pay off, but in fact, it did. Fizzy drinks went from 12.4% of American beverage consumption in 1970 to almost double that figure in 1985. And although Coke maintained its lead in that period with about a third of the market, Pepsi's share shot up from 20% to over a peak of 30% in the 1990s. So they won because the market grew and they were both able to grow. They had been also rans in the advertising and marketing game, but once the Cola war got going, they became superstar marketers. Last year, fizzy drinks totaled $77 billion in America and over $300 billion globally. Coke and Pepsi remain dominant and, in fact, have squeezed smaller players to the margins. Pepsi has given up some of its market share, but that's only because it has other alternatives for deploying shareholder capital. It has a huge and successful snacks business, which Coca Cola does not, and also diversified very aggressively into water, coffee, energy drinks, and health conscious foods for a health conscious public. As a result, Over the last 40 years, PepsiCo has returned nearly a third more to shareholders than has Coca-Cola. Now, in many industries, a cozy duopoly retards innovation and harms consumers. We see this in industry after industry as consolidation, mergers and acquisition, and a lack of antitrust scrutiny has led to lumbering giants. The difference in Cola is that the Cola Wars has produced two dynamic, vibrant competitors that have benefited consumers with innovation and more choice and low prices. As Donald Kendall himself observed, if there wasn't a Coca-Cola, we would have had to invent one. And they would have had to invent Pepsi.
1: Our thanks to Vijay Vaishiswaran. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist.